I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of women over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, and invite us to conduct workshops or speak to your organization on issues that matter to women aging. Consider becoming a sponsor. And if you are an author with a book for women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're delighted to welcome to the studio, Ellen Schubert. Ellen is 78. She was a teacher in the Chicago Public Schools and taught in Lombard. Once her children were born, she stayed at home until the youngest was three. And that's when she began a career in journalism, first for Pioneer Press, then Crane Communications. Her real love, however, proved to be architecture, preservation, and politics. Since 2006, she has been a docent at the Chicago Architecture Center and became president of the Docent Council. She is an author of four books. Ellen has definite thoughts on aging, friendships, and her mother, who died at 101. So, Ellen, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thanks, Gail. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> We're glad to have you. So you've had four very different careers, teaching, journalism, politics, and architecture preservation, or maybe that's five, I'm not sure. And uh, so how, tell me how, tell us, how did well, how this come about? Um, it certainly wasn't exactly planned. I think it's more like a pinball machine. The ball just went and boom, and then we bumped onto something else and something else. Um, I consider myself very lucky for all the things that I have done. Um, I went to college and um, my mother did not. So I was the first woman in my family to go to college. And of course, in, in the 1960s, I had those age old decisions. Did you want to be a nurse or a teacher or some sort of social worker? And um, uh, I chose teaching. Um, and then when I got into it, I loved it. I don't get me wrong. It was a great, it was a great profession, but when I got pregnant, I stopped teaching, stayed home. And then I fell into journalism because a neighbor on the street had a party. I met the editor of the local paper and we got talking and I said, I had done some writing like that in college. And she almost immediately offered me a part-time job which then developed into a half-time job, which then developed into a full-time job. And what did you, what, was that with Pioneer Press? That was with Pioneer Press. And at the beginning, because it was just part-time, it was writing features about the school. So I would drag my, my own kids who are not in school yet, or later just the one who wasn't in school. And we would go to uh, PTA enrichment programs, I went to the school board and reported on that. And it was all aimed at reporting to the community about the schools um, and what was happening. And then I started working half time doing more in the actual office of the uh, uh, Pioneer Press. And when I left Pioneer in, um, in the late 1980s, 
I was an editor and a group editor having a number of papers under one roof, you know, so it included Evans. I had been the editor in Evanston and Northbrook and Highland Park and in Glencoe over the years that I was at Pioneer Press. Hmm. And, and then you went to Crane, but you weren't there too long, were you? Uh, no, I was there close to, to another, it, it was almost eight, eight nine years. Oh. Um, and um, Crane Communications was a totally different thing. It was downtown. I took the train. It was much more, uh, quote unquote, professional. We were dealing with the business of uh, the city. And so if you went on an interview, it was not like being a suburban mom going on an interview in the schools. You had to get dressed and and wear a suit and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was there. Uh, I first worked for uh, for Crane's uh, Chicago. Um, Chicago, Crane Chicago Business, it's called. And then from there, um, I became the editor first of a national publication called City and State about the business of government. And then later on, um, a, a magazine called Franchise Times about the franchise industry uh, nationally. Um, and I think when you say that I went into politics, um, I was involved in in local politics at home in Glencoe, I became a trustee on the village board after having served on the planning commission as the head of the uh, preservation uh, commission and uh, had done a lot of that locally at the same time that I was that I was working. Mm hmm. So you so how did preservation become so important to you? Well, um, preservation became extremely important to me because I lived in the northern suburbs of Chicago, where at that time, and I will say it's happening again, um, the, the most fun thing the developers had to do is just buy a house, tear it down, and put up something new and bigger, what we derisively called McMansions. Um, and I was very much against that. I have a, I have a history degree. Uh, my undergraduate from Michigan was in history. My MA was in history from Roosevelt University. And I believe in historic stuff. I, you know, as a kid, I loved going to Williamsburg or any uh, of those kinds of uh, colonial reenactment places. Um, and I just didn't think that it was a, a good public policy to just take buildings down without thinking about preserving them. So I got involved as a volunteer and an ad hoc committee in Glencoe with other people who had felt very similarly. And we uh, created a historic preservation, um, the draft of what we thought could become a law and presented it to the, um, to the village board, which is the equivalent of a city council. Uh, and they took it under advisement. Uh, they didn't pass what we had written, they, but they did accept the fact that there were so many people who were concerned about preservation that they set up a preservation commission in the village and they passed an ordinance much, much less restrictive than what we had hoped. But nevertheless, there was an ordinance to work with. And so I became the chairman of the preservation commission for the village board at that point. And we began working on convincing people who owned these homes 
to allow them to be landmarked, with which then put a few restrictions on it. Didn't quite keep them from being torn down, but at least it, it made people think about what they were doing with their house uh, before they sold. And that's how I then got into um, onto the village board. But in the town I was in, in Glencoe, it's it's a caucus system and there's no competitive running for office. So yes, it's political, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> so, so was there, uh, I mean, can, if we were to go through Glencoe today, is there anything we could point to that would say this lasted because of the uh, preservation policy? Oh yeah. Yeah. There are a number, not nearly as many as I would like, um, there are only about uh, a dozen or so that are actually landmarked in such a way that nobody can take them down without the Preservation Commission giving per approval. So that's really, they are protected. Mm -hmm. And um, they are mostly residential and it's it's people who believe in in that kind of thing. But I also volunteer now, you know, I, you, you said I am a volunteer at the Architecture Center, and I am, and I do a great deal there, but I also volunteer for the Glencoe Historical Society, and we just saved a Frank Lloyd Wright house from being destroyed. Somebody purchased it, said, I don't want it, we're going to, it was a developer, we're going to tear it down and build something new and more expensive, and the Historical Society has taken the building, we arranged a purchase from the one who owned it, we moved the house. We arranged a deal with the park district to uh, put it in a park for an, on a 99-year lease. And frankly, now I'm raising, trying to raise money to finish up the restoration. The out, the exterior, the outside is all done, but we need a little bit more money to finish up what's going on um, inside. And when it opens, it will be a um, a little small museum about Frank Lloyd Wright's efforts. And architecture in Glencoe. Nice. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a both a, an absolute pleasure and an honor to have been involved with people who did this. It's also a pain in the you know where because <laughs> it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of money to continue to keep it, you know, just like a house. You own a house, you gotta you gotta keep it up. Sure, sure. So I assume there's a foundation for that. That's what we're trying to get started with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you mentioned the Architecture Center. Tell us about that. Well, when I was getting ready to retire, and I have to say, I, I switched over from journalism. I went back to school, got a, a master's degree in preservation, and I went to work for the Metropolitan Planning Council, which is an, an advocacy, non-governmental, not-for-profit agency and we argued for sensible planning and um, trying to get the region to be more sustainable. And it was pretty early in the fight. I I feel like what I hear today people saying I was saying 20 years ago, but um, it was just beginning then. Anyway, um, I was I I was uh, working for them and I was very happy doing the job that I had, which was the head of a coalition of villages and towns and cities in the region who were working towards sustainable uh, development. But my husband uh, had retired two years earlier 
not by choice, but because the company he worked for had been bought out and shut down. So he was home and I was working with towns and municipalities late at night, coming back from village board meetings at 11 o'clock at night. And we decided that that just doesn't going to work. So I retired and I knew before I retired that I wanted to be a tour guide for the architecture center. Mm -hmm. So I made sure I had already applied and had been accepted. And then I put in my resignation from MPC. And um, that was, I retired on December 31st and I started taking the classes as a tour guide um, in January uh, of the next year. Uh, Being a guide is terrific. The architecture center uh, gives docents 15 weeks of training. That's once a week. You come downtown, you take classes all day, you learn, and then you go home, do homework, run, try, practice what you can. Um, And then they send you out on the street uh, to lead tours about architecture because Chicago is the birthplace of the skyscraper. Chicago has a very rich heritage in architectural history. And um, it was it was phenomenal. It was so much fun. The first tour I ever gave, I was shaking in my boots. And these women came in from Detroit. They were a book group and they had decided to take a trip to Chicago for a weekend. And of course, they signed up for a tour. And um, before we even walked out of the door, this woman said to me, how many of these tours have you done? And I had to admit I had never done any. But they were really fun and we had a good time. And since then, um, I'm now um, what we call certified. I'm, I'm able to give uh, and I lead 25 different tours. I love them. <laughs> I, I think they're fabulous. And um, just two years ago, I learned the penultimate tour, which is the river cruise. And I give that one too. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of different things. A lot of them have spread out to more than just straight on architecture. Um, for example, I give a tour out at Oakwood Cemetery called From the Civil War to Civil Rights, which is really the story of the civil rights movement in Chicago, told by all of the people who are buried there from Ida mm-hmm. B. Wells and Harold Washington um, and Ada McKinley and um, and John Johnson and so on. Uh, you get to, so it's more history than, than architecture, but it's within the uh, the purview of the architecture center. That's one I'd like to take. I well, anytime we give them on Saturdays, but we can't take more than 30 people at a time. So <laughs> keep trying. They get sold out quickly. I bet. I bet. You know, uh, you, you were introduced to us by another uh, Chicago architecture uh, center docent, Marsha Ross. Right. Yeah. Who, um, who introduced you to us. And she was also a guest on women over 70. So Yeah, Marcia and I remarkably have a very similar story to tell. We both were very, when we we got married very young, both of us got married at age 20. When uh, I was married and went overseas with my husband who was serving in the U.S. Army, he was officially uh, marked as my guardian until I got to be 21. Uh, they They did that. So she and I had that. We both taught school and then we both had kids. And by the time we had children, 
things had opened up for women in a way that allowed us to go in different directions. I mean, she went into fundraising and working for not-for-profits. I uh, went into journalism, but that beginning was the same for women our age, and we are the same, she and I are the same age, um, and how we had been channeled. But then in the um, in the 1970s and 80s, openings just became much wider in terms of what women were able to do. Um, I don't know whether I would say that it was openings and opportunities were to get to the top of any of these places. That would that was hard. But um, just to get into things that were not nursing, social work and teaching, and I don't mean to denigrate any of those careers because they are fine, but to be limited, suddenly, we it, it just opened up that there was so much more that you could do with your life mm-hmm. and make it your own. Mm-hmm. Do you have daughters? Ellen? I have one daughter and one son, and um, both of them <laughs> went into pretty much the same um, the same careers. They went into something related to show business, really? um, which uh, I I can't say anything more than. We took them to a lot of theater and a lot of dance when they were young. Um, but otherwise, and no, really, I, I credit I credit the fact that they went to New Troy High School and both of them got involved in the um, in the arts department. And to this day, they are both working in fields that are related to that. It's not on the stage stuff. My son is the business manager of a theater foundation in New York that runs a couple of not-for-profit theaters and gives out money to playwrights. And my daughter, who lives in uh, Minneapolis, uh, works for a firm that puts shows on the road, children's shows. Um, If you're a grandmother of a certain age, you'll know what I mean when I say Paw Patrol. It's a Nickelodeon show. It's probably one of the most popular ones now. Well, they did the um, the live Nickelodeon shows, you know, that come to your town in an arena. And she is the project manager for the, for a couple of those shows. Interesting. So in the, in uh, Gail's introduction, she mentioned that you're the author of four books. Yes. And in, in a lot of ways, um, uh, this all stems back to when I was in college, I wrote for the daily newspaper, the Michigan daily. And then I started writing Uh, for Pioneer Press, and I am a fast and easy writer. Um, So the first book that I did was for the Glencoe Historical Society. Another woman and I just used the picture base, the picture collection uh, at the Historical Historical Society, and we made one of those. I'm sure you've seen them. They're an Arcadia book. It's for a particular town. Um, It's it's very... um, it's very structured as to how you do it. You need 200 pictures. You write captions for those. And then if you want to, you can write copy to, to hook them together, which is exactly what we did. That was the first book. Uh, that was very successful. And she and I donated all the uh, royalties to the Historical Society. But I figured out how, how you can do that. And another friend and I did the same thing for Little Italy, um, as Chicago's Little Italy, colon, uh, Taylor Street. Um, and she lived, she is Italian-American. She lived in the area. 
And she got all the pictures from all of her neighbors and we wrote to make the stories go together. Uh, and we put together together the book. The last two books I've written since I retired and another docent, docents, well, I'll, I'll finish that thought in a minute, but another docent introduced me to a publisher in St. Louis uh, who sells a lot of books based on the same kind of book in each city. And what I mean by that is I wrote a book called What's With Chicago? And in there's another book called What's With St. Louis? And there's another book called What's With Cincinnati? Mm. Um, and the second book that I wrote for this publisher, which just came out in May, is Chicago, an illustrated timeline. And this publisher has Cincinnati, an illustrated timeline, Cleveland, an illustrated timeline. So you get the idea. These books are, are with a, a specific uh, template. But this other docent had already written for the publisher, 100 Things to See in Chicago Before You Die. Oh. And uh, she was- oh, I've written, read that. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, by, it's by Molly Page. And Molly was uh, tasked by the um, publisher to find writers in Chicago who would be interested in writing for him on any of these these books. And so that's how I got involved. I wrote the first one, What's with Chicago, had a good time doing a whole lot of presentations and marketing. And um, now I'm doing the same thing with this new book, which I wrote, frankly, during the pandemic, because I didn't have anything else to do. Um, I was looking for a project and the publisher had asked me before, would I do it? And I said, no, I was studying for the river cruise uh, to learn how to do that. I didn't have the time. But once we got into the pandemic and I knew that it was going to be more than just two weeks of not being able to go outside, mm -hmm. I thought, hell, I can I can start writing now. So so that's where that book came from. But I <laughs> want to go back to the thought and I will I will just expound a little bit. Being a retired person in a group of a not for profit like CAC, where many of the docents are also retired, um, has been a, a boon both for me and my husband. Um, I still have friends from when I worked, yes, but I have made so many new friends whom I know have very similar interests to mine, architecture, preservation, travel, theater, music, and they're here and we see each other it's been terrible during the pandemic. We haven't seen each other as much, but we see each other on Zoom. And they have formed a whole new nucleus of friends for us that have made our life richer and better in retirement. Mm. Is, is Richard a docent too? No, Richard is not. He's kind of an ersatz docent because he goes around with me a lot. Uh, Richard is much more into music since he's retired, he plays an instrument. He plays the French horn and he has been a member of an orchestra or two. He's just a member now of one. And he takes classes in music um, appreciation over at the Gleacher Center, which mm -hmm. is the University of Chicago's continuing ed um, building, which is right over the bridge and the river here. So it's very convenient for him. Right. You know, when we spoke, you talked about your mother who died yeah. 101. And senior living, you want to tell? Um, yeah, my my mother, um, as I said, never went to college. 
but she worked all her life. She didn't go back to work till both my brother and I were uh, teenagers. But once we were, she went back to work. Uh, she's a seamstress. Or in, in the old fashioned terms, they'd say she tailored. Um, she worked for a very fine, well, before her marriage, she worked for Saks Fifth Avenue on Michigan Avenue and made wedding dresses, the handmade parts of them. Uh, but once she, she was pregnant, she had to retire. They didn't keep women who had children. So as I said, she went back to work when I was a teenager. And for almost, uh, that must have been when she was in her middle 40s, all the way up till she was 65 or older, she worked um, for dress shops up and down the North Shore. The last one she worked for was in Winnetka. It was called Madeline's. And um, she was in what you might call the alteration department, but when you get to more high-end clothing, um, it's also the fitting because they'll buy French imports and the, the sizes are all different and they just fit the dress to you. So that's, that's what she was doing. She ran the workroom. She was the only um, native-born American in the workroom, by the way. Most of the women were uh, Greek or other immigrants. Um, my father died young. He was in his 60s. And my mother remarried. Uh, and she married a guy who was uh, one of my father's classmates in college. And so we all knew each other. It was a very easy transition. And to be perfectly honest, we were, meaning my brother and his wife and Richard and I were very happy that my mother found somebody uh, because then he could take care of the checkbook and the other stuff. And they lived in Lake Forest during the winter, I mean, during the summer. And in the winter, they went to Florida. Well, lo along in their lives, close to 20 years later, um, he's in his 80s and he begins to get um, things that are uh, related. To, it looks like he's going to get Alzheimer's, which ultimately he did. And um, the first thing we had to do was to say, you cannot drive anymore. And at that point, we made a decision, all of us, they were included, um, as to the fact that they preferred to go to a senior living place in order to have socialization. They didn't want to live in place because it was a condo in Lake Forest. You could walk to the downtown kind of, but that was about the extent of it. Whereas in Chicago, where they ultimately ended up in a senior living building, they could hop on the bus and go downtown. They could still go to the symphony and all of that kind of stuff. I think my mother lived three different lives in that place because at the, uh, ultimately we had to uh, put my stepfather into a memory care unit that was locked. And then he died um, because she couldn't deal with him. He wandered and there was no way she was, she was five foot eight. He was six foot two. And there was no way she was going to stop him if he wanted to go out of the apartment and out into the street. Um, she went through three different groups of friends at that place. There was a group at the beginning, at the middle, and then at, at the end because people kept dying. I thought that was fascinating as to depending on which point in time you talk to her, there were different, there were different people. Um, the other thing that was very wonderful for us is she ultimately took care of her own um, end of life because she started with she had to have something put on her back, some salve or some 
uh, I don't know, skin problem. And she found that there was a, a, um, a network of Filipino caregivers in that building. She found one of them. She hired them for half an hour a day to put the stuff on her back. Then when it got a little harder to take a bath or whatever, she hired the same lady who came and did that for four hours a day. When it came time that she needed help more than that to sleep overnight, she hired her again. And we had the same caregiver all the way through the last, oh, I'd say three years of my mother's life. Um, and it it was, it just worked out so perfectly. We never had what I think see some of my friends have now. The resentment of people being put into institutions and they say, I don't belong here, you're putting me in jail. Or or nor did we have this isn't good for you. What's happening? You're being put into an assisted living and separated from your spouse or any of that, those kinds of, of problems. And, and so my mother now, was pardon. Yeah, so how does this how does this um make you think about your own aging? Well, I was gonna say a lot of my friends are now starting to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right now, Richard and I have moved from Glencoe to a condo that's all one floor and has a lot of bedrooms and bathrooms. Uh, And we tell people, and it's true, so that all our kids can come at one time and not have to stay at a hotel. But frankly, if push comes to shove and one of us gets ill or one of us is left, we have a bedroom bathroom uh, suite so that somebody has to move in here and take care of us, they could. I think if we are still as my mother was, my mother was together in her head until she turned 100. Um, I think that we would we would stick around here because our building has a swimming pool. It has a fitness center. There are groups that you can join if you want to go to a book group or uh, or something else. And if we were unable to get out of the building, we still would have enough to keep us going in the building. But I think there are lots of people my age, um, lots of couples. It's become topics at dinner parties I've been to, trying to figure this out, trying to make it a different experience than what mm-hmm. some of our parents have had. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you'd had a hip operation recently. Yeah, I did. Uh, May 26th, I had my hip replaced. It's not unusual. My mother had her hip replaced at 94. Okay. That was <laughs> that, that was a that was a stitch because the doctor had never done anything on somebody that old before and, and it was a it was a whole thing. Um I I had a little bit of a of a hiccup at the beginning, but otherwise it went exactly the way uh the doctors tell you. It was four to six weeks. I went to PT. I'm fine. I'm giving tours again. Uh, the best part about it was each of my kids took a week to come. So I got to see them and talk to them when I hadn't, you know, for such a long time because of the pandemic. But but otherwise, it it was it was not difficult. But I will say, again, talk at conversations at lunches and at dinners about all of the friends now who are facing all kinds of crazy things, um, you know, from cancer uh, to knees and hips being replaced all the way along. And the fact that so many docents are involved uh, gives you, again, a, a, a cohort of people to talk to about, to work with, to get guidance from, 
And um, it's like a little community that that makes retirement not isolated. It makes it busy. And um, it's it's just I can't say enough about finding a niche somewhere in some group of people that, you know, like the same things you do. Mm -hmm. Makes so much sense. It really does. Yeah. Well, wow. (laughs) Your life is very full. Um, Yeah. I, uh, I, I give tours. I give three, three, four or five tours a week. So that gets me out of the house. And then I'm also active in the docent government. You, you noted I was the president of the docent council for three years. Uh, I'm not, I'm no longer doing that, but I am involved in the, in, in the committee structure and the docent body at the architecture center is a little different than most of the docent bodies around town. Um, we not only do the tours and sign up to, you know, I could be an exhibit host. That's one of the things I'm, I'm certified for, but um, we also have committee structures and we have a docent council that really makes policy. We make our own decisions. Mm-hmm. We, um, we are involved in making sure that our docents following through. We, we review the tours that they are giving. We review them every three years. We uh, take care of, we, if the architecture center gets a complaint, Ellen didn't talk about the right buildings or how could she possibly have missed this building on a tour? Um, and somebody complains, the architecture center refers that to the docent body, which has a committee that deals with this. Mm. And um, so we're self-governing and self-regulating at the same time. I've always joked that it would be a nice Harvard um, case study because mm. it is a, a docent-run organization on the, on the tour side. Wow. I think uh, it's another book, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good idea, Catherine. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. But it, it, it's an amazing thing when you really get into it and you find out how it works. I mean, if you want to be a docent and take the, the training and then just give tours, you can do that. Not everybody gets involved. But more than 50% of the people do get involved and do get on committees. And, um, of course, because we are a retired group, we are uh, major- my, uh, majority female, and so a lot of the a lot of the total leadership has been female over the years. I mean, we have a president of the Dawson Council right now who's a man, but the previous four were women or five before you hit another man. So it's it's a very women oriented organization, and. Um, at the same time, we do a lot. We write the tours, we approve the tours, we regulate the tours, and uh, the architecture center sells the tours. That's their job. But we're doing the what I would call the heavy lifting. I don't know what they would say about it, but that's how I would put it. Well, clearly, this keeps you young at heart and young of mind, <laughs> and we could talk to you for another hour. (laughs) But unfortunately, our time has come to an end. And it's unfortunate for us because you are so interesting, Ellen. And well, thank you, Gail. I just and Catherine as well. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. 
And I think, you know, my mother, my hundred year old mother always said, you're not even old until you get to be 85. And that's when it starts going down. So, So I figure I had a lot of years left. I think a lot of other women who might think that they are um, already over the hill, they've got a lot of years left too, and all should have a great time living. (laughs) Thank you, Ellen. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And become an active participant in our Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Facebook group. You can visit our website, womenover70.com, and discover everything you'd like to know about our Women Over 70 community. And we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.